Today is a quick hits episode where we talk about a topic in less than 15 minutes. And today we are continuing to be excited about Essen coming up by talking about why Germany has become such an important spot for board games. Just a reminder that if you feel so inclined, hit that subscribe button or follow button to stay up to date with our pods. And we are approaching our 500 subscriber goal on YouTube. Our goal was to get to 500 by my birthday in mid-October and we are just about at 460. So we are almost there. And thank you again for listening. Even if you aren't subscribed, it makes us happy just to know people are listening. So let's get to our topic of the day. Why is Germany such a force in board gaming? The anime after school dice club is an interesting one. I wouldn't say it's good, but it's definitely an anime. Based off of the manga of the same name written by Hiro Nakamichi, you could tell that everyone who had a hand in the writing have a clear love for board games. It centers around a group of girls who start playing board games after school, with one girl wanting to be a board game designer. She tends to be the one who explains the rules to each game, usually one per episode, and these games might be traditional games like Goita, or modern ones like Celtis, which you might know better as its iteration, Lost Cities. I'm not just talking about an anime for no reason, don't worry, because this girl brings up an interesting point. That is, one theory as to why Germany has such a fascination and culture around board games. She brings up the linguistic angle, that board game designers are not called designers, they are called authors, giving a sense of ownership and fame. This slight difference, as she explains, allows people to follow an author they like, much as we follow book writers. But the other thing that she brings up is the word for game, spiel, which is a similar word as to play, which is spielen. This lack of difference means that playing and game just goes hand in hand with each other. Now, there are others who have thought about this theory as well, not just an anime writer. It's a whole chicken and the egg thing. Were games and plays so interlinked that the words came later to match that, or were they already so interlinked by vocabulary and roots that they just became synonymous with each other? It hits on something called linguistic relativity, or some of you may have heard this as the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, a really strange name for something that was neither co-authored by Sapir and Whorf, and both Sapir and Whorf have said it's not a hypothesis. Weird irony that linguists couldn't properly name a linguistic phenomenon. Anyways, back to linguistic relativity. Now, before it was thought that language determined behavior, and I mean it in the strongest sense. The language you use determines your thought and the way you perceive the world. Basically, you are limited by the language you speak. But after World War II, this has been widely countered, even by Sapir himself, and this remains a controversial idea today. However, there has been evidence of a much weaker interaction between language and thoughts, more that it can influence the way we think. It can shape our perceptions, but it doesn't necessarily limit us. This is why you may see people who speak multiple languages have slightly different personalities based on the language they are speaking. There's cultural values embedded in language. This makes for a nice story that a culture was almost fated to love games by the language they speak, but there's more to it than that. This actually calls for social history. World War II changed a lot of things around the world, to say the least. And after it was done, daily lives were changed. The routines changed. People's relationships with each other changed. Society as a whole started valuing new things. One such thing that became more prevalent in West Germany after the war was leisure time. If you remember back to the very first episode of the board game Dojo, we talked about how the agricultural revolution brought about leisure time for the first time. And with it, we got the first ever board games. Well, in West Germany, you get a similar thing. 
before World War II, games were for kids, often a way of teaching important lessons in life. But this changed after the war. With more leisure time, games became a way of passing the time. You could invite your neighbors over and have a night of chatting, drinking, and playing games. A rainy day? Instead of watching TV all day, you could play a family game. Games became a symbol of wholesomeness, togetherness, and social cohesion. Part of that came from the games they were playing. An early hallmark of what was to come, nobody wanted a game about war, so games didn't have it. In fact, the game Risk needed to be changed to liberating people as the goal, instead of taking over the world in order to be sold there. And it might have continued down this path, albeit gradually, a thing people did in their homes or with their neighbors, but not much else, if it weren't von Irvin Glonegger. Up until he was drafted to the war, Glonegger worked at a book publisher as a bookseller in Ollendorf. There, he states in an interview, they sold and published books that were anti-Nazi, so they needed to be careful who they hired. The interview was actually playing a game of Monopoly. How much of an impact this had on his philosophy of board games is unknown, but at the very least, it gave him some perspective that board games had value beyond the realm of just kids. After the war in which he was a prisoner of war for two years, he got a new job at a company that did some games and lots of books in Ravensburg, Germany. You may have heard of it. It's called Asmodee. I'm kidding. It's Ravensburger. There, as he tells it, he came across and made the decision to publish a game that you might know as Memory or Concentration. Yes, that game in which you flip over a couple cards and hopefully get a match. A game that has entertained for more than 60 years and to this day remains the best-selling game in Ravenberger's history. But it wasn't just publishing memory that made a splash. No, it was a practice that he had learned as a book publisher. You see, you could just release a book and rely on word of mouth, but if you wanted to get some buzz about it, you would send it to the newspaper first and have them review it. He wondered why nobody was doing this for board games, so he started it with memory. He sent a review copy to the local newspapers. As he tells it, their first reaction was to contact him and ask, what are we supposed to do with this? Review it, he said. And so they did. They played it and wrote about it in the papers. And it worked. So Gloniger kept doing it. Soon enough, other game publishers followed suit, sending newspapers games to review and critique. And they wouldn't review this in the depths of the papers where nobody would read it. No, it would be next to reviews of the latest movies and music. Right next to the latest dramas and plays, there it would be. The review of the latest board game. I'm not sure what everyone else calls that section of the newspaper, but in the US and Japan, it's called the culture section. In other words, board games had literally become a part of culture in West Germany. But to many newspaper journalists and reviewers, the people had noticed, but not enough, the newest games coming out, the good and the bad. They weren't talking about the best games enough. So they decided to do something about it. In February 1978, a group of them got together after they had just finished doing their reports on the Nuremberg Toy Fair. They agreed that, in fact, people weren't paying attention when they would have their very best reviews and wondered what they could do. The idea came from Jürgen Hertz, and the idea was somewhat simple. Play every game that came out that year and pick a game of the year, or as they call it, the Spiel des They discussed the rules over the course of a few months. The judges had to be experienced game journalists. Those journalists could not work for the game industry. The game, in order to be eligible, would need to be in German. And finally, a characteristic that hinted at how much board games were a part of culture, innovation was not the only thing that was awarded, but also the fact that anyone could play it. The first game to be awarded, and it actually needed to be awarded twice because the first year they picked it, 1978, they just kind of didn't tell anyone, so the whole goal failed, was Hare and Tortoise, a game from English designer David Parlett. Now, there are a couple of factors that, according to the source, was the reason they picked this game, and most likely both. For one, its way of changing how racing games were played was innovative. Instead of rolling dice, you would spend carrots to use as fuel. 
from the BGG page itself, you must practically run out all but 10 carats or fewer at the moment you hit the finish line. You also have three lettuce cards you must spend during the course of the race. The farther you move, the more carats you spend. And there are a variety of ways to gain or lose carats as you go around the track. Basically, it was math. An exercise in arithmetic and planning. It did away with luck and rewarded those with skill. And because it was all about how wise you were with the carrots, and you could fail, people could come from behind and snatch victory from the arms of defeat. The other factor that some argue was that it was a tip of the cap towards the company that had gotten games journalists going in West Germany to begin with. Heron Tortoise had been published by Ravensburger. Either way, it took a couple of years for the Spiel des Jahres to gain a massive following, but it was pretty quickly trusted. Some games historians cite the Spiel des Jahres as one of the reasons German game design took off in the 1980s, and I think it makes sense. The game awards gave even more legitimacy to the authoring of board games. These things once thought of as just for kids was something to now talk about and discuss with everyone. More newspapers started reviewing games, more people started buying games, and with the increase in board game sales, which led to West Germany having the highest board game per capita in the world, you had more people playing and critiquing the games, iterating on their favorites or improving on others. The best would get that lovely Spiel des Jahres seal and be quickly sold out. Authors started to become known, and publishers coveted the award for their profits, so more chances were given to publish more games for more and more people. In fact, it wasn't just held to Germans. People from all over Europe tried their hand at designing games that would appeal to the German audience. In his book It's All a Game, Tristan Donovan likens this revolution in gaming to Autobahn by Kraftwerk, a song that brought electronic synths and, as Donovan explains, dismantled pop music and reassembled it into a new exciting form. This gaming revolution disassembled the roll-and-move mechanism that had to that point dominated the market, moving away from luck. And soon enough, you had an entirely new genre of game, the German style of board game. These had distinctive characteristics that made sense for the culture. The point of these games was to foster social bonds, so gone was a player elimination that would leave someone unable to play the game. Relatedly, there would always be a way of staying in the game with a chance to win, going against the idea of artificial elimination, or the idea you know you've lost before the game is over. Importantly, luck and direct conflict were done away with for the most part as well. It was all about how well you yourself could make a plan and execute that plan. What decisions did you make correctly or incorrectly? It was comparative achievement rather than competitive demolition. The 1980s and 1990s were a time of great innovation for these games. Games like Scotland Yard with its one-versus-all appeal, or probably most famously, The Settlers of Catan, which, if you want to hear more about, check out our History of Board Game series. The culture had been set. Board games were here to stay, even when experts predicted they would go the way of the dinosaurs once video games came along. But they did more than exist, they thrived. You can buy games at supermarkets, and I'm not just talking about little card games, full-size katans can be bought at your local convenience store. An essential, really. And with this, people from outside Europe got interested. Companies like Mayfair and Rio Grande Games started business models of importing games from Europe and translating them into English. Hobby Japan and Arclight started getting rights to produce their own versions in Japanese. Companies like Days of Wonder noticed the trend towards these games for adults and started making their own designs. But no matter how many of these companies pop up around the world, the spot that so many people still want to travel to and visit for their board game fix remains in Germany, and will take place next week at the time of recording. Essen. Started in 1983 as a reader's meeting for a gaming magazine, it took place over three days in which there were various game courses, competitions, discussions, and games rounds. Thanks to an announcement in the morning magazine on WDR2, an additional 5,000 visitors from Essen and the rural area came. 
1986 was when the name Spiel appeared, and more companies started making it a huge event with entertainers and award shows. Every year, the Spiel organizers and companies that exhibited learned more and more about how to make the event successful, churning through some bad weather years, and poor building organization. But every year, the attendance grew little by little, and by the turn of the decade, the yearly attendance was over 100,000 people, and 1994's event was the first time it reached over 400 exhibitors. By 2013, the Spiel event had grown to cover multiple halls to house over 500 exhibitors from over 20 countries. And today, Spiel is the largest board game convention in the world. There are more than 1,000 games listed on the app as being sold there, sold by gaming companies all over the world looking to sell to people of all ages and interests. Hotels in the area sell out half a year in advance. The average hotel price for the weekend is over $1,000. I think I'll be staying in Dortmund. But whether it's Essen itself or the games that will be sold there, the things that Spiel des Jahres look for or the games vying to win it, the core of what games mean in Germany is the same. Games are for everyone. If you want to know how Germany became what many people see as the mecca of board gaming, look no further than that. There is no player elimination and always a chance for a comeback. Whether you're a kid or an adult, someone with no gaming experience or years of it, the thing that is incredible about German-style games is that there is always a seat at the table and a piece of cardboard for you to enjoy. And we can do it together. Thank you so much for listening today. If you liked what you heard, we'd love if you could leave us a five-star review. Have a great day, everyone. Arigatou gozaimashita. Until next time, janne! 